Hello, my name is Justin McLuhan. I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're doing two directors for a very specific reason. We're going to be talking about Fred Olin Ray and Jim Wynorski. And if you're like, well, who are these guys? If you're over 25, it's a guarantee you've seen their movies on the video store shelves. And you've probably seen them late night TV, like uh, Cinemax, Showtime. Uh, if you're in the States, USA, up all night, they would play their movies all the time. S- the Sci-Fi Channel, the Space Channel here. Just a few titles. Return of Swamp Thing, Death Stalker 2, Chopping Mall, Evil Tunes. The Witches of Brestwick. <laughs> Dino Croc versus Super Gator. Fred Olin Ray's most famous picture, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. Yep. Um. So I was aware of them for a long time. And for a long time, I didn't like their movies at all. Mm-hmm. I just dismissed them instantly. I was like, Fred Olin Ray, get it away from me. Because if you've seen any of their famous films, specifically Evil Tunes, which if you were a teenager, you remember as the one cover... That was a woman with large breasts and a cartoon dog demon over her shoulder. And in fact, I saw the trailer for it uh, before I saw the movie, um, which really hyped up the one scene that had a t- <laughs> an anim- animated cartoon in it. Like, it promises you're going to see an adult version of Who Framed Roger Rabbit mm. in a horror movie setting. And you're like, oh boy! And it's really just girls in a haunted house-like situation and at one point, a cartoon comes out of a book. It should be called Evil Toon. <laughs> yes, it should. <laughs> but supposedly it was a huge hit. And that's really all that of matters. Course, of course it was a hit. People just bought, rented it once. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, and didn't finish it. I don't know how we're going to go about this and talk about Fred Olin Ray and Jim Wynorski at the same time. Well, first of all, I think this is going to be the Justin DeClue show. Because, <laughs> you know, you really took to this like a pig and shit. I mean... <laughs> Every time I checked Letterboxd this week, uh, it was just one awful movie with a one and a half star grade after another. (laughs) (laughs) Me, I watched three films by each auteur, Mm -hmm. which... That's a lot of work. Already almost killed me. Well, we watched two of them together. That's right. We watched Beverly Hills Vamp and... (laughs) Hard to Die. Oh, yeah. Hard to Die. And then on my own, I watched uh, Chopping Mall and Return of Swamp Thing by Jim Wynorski. And I watched Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers and Scalps by Fred Olin Ray. We should go all the way back to the beginning with Fred Olin Ray. So Fred Olin Ray is an independent guy. That's how he's pretty much always been. And that's how he started. The first film he made was a little piece of shit. And he'll say that himself called the brain leeches that he made with the equipment that he had at his TV station that he used the cameras that he had at hand to shoot this film that according to him, he projected once and never released anywhere. But then his second film, the alien dead is the one that, kind of gave him a name. It's a film that for a long time you could find on a million bootleg VHS tapes. And that was one that he shot on film. He did it himself. He started a uh, technique that he would use in all his future films, which is you would cast an old washed up actor, in this case, Buster Crab, from the old Flash Gordon serials. That's an old (laughs) fucking actor. (laughs) Uh, uh, Fred Olin Ray said he met him while making a special on the Senior Olympics. (laughs) And and that's how you sell the picture. And The Alien Dead, Ferlin Ray hates the movie. He dismisses it instantly. I actually kind of like it because of the fact that it is 
shot off the cuff and it has this 16 millimeter grainy look he'll be the first one to say that he didn't really know what he was doing so what happened was that like they had no sync sound and what they would do is he had all the actors record the their dialogue beforehand and then he would play it on set and they would have to try to match their lips <laughs> to the dialogue that they pre-recorded that's funny you know it's not that hot a movie and that's something i'll be repeating a lot in this podcast but the second film that we'll watch as well that he made after was scalps and so after after Ferland Ray made Alien Dead, he decided he was going to make his move to Hollywood. He had no money in his pocket, but he had to take a shot at it because he loved movies so much. And that's something important about both Jim Wynorski and Ferland Ray. And the reason that we're really talking about them today is that they are huge movie buffs. Mm-hmm. Like you've read interviews or listened to commentaries yeah. and you, that is instantly recognizable. Um, so I watched Scalps, mm-hmm. um, which was shot on 16 millimeter, but looks like it was shot on eight millimeter. Yes, it does. Anything. Super eight. Uh, I was... Uh, Briefly excited to see that Forrest J. Ackerman, the former editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland, was in it, but he's only in it for about 30 seconds. Most of the movie, you compared it to Evil Dead. It's a group of college students who uh, go out into the wilderness. It looks like some barren canyon type area. Yeah, it's probably uh, the Bronson Canyon where they shot like all the Star Trek episodes. Yeah, and Robot Monster. Yep. But they go to a place that is an aboriginal burial ground, and one of them gets possessed by an aboriginal demon, and... uh, Uh, some scalping takes place this is a movie that um well definitely has kind of like the look and the texture of the sort of movie i would like Mm -hmm. um because it has that really low budget vibe uh the distributor added music to the movie after so it has this i saw a lot it's called murder drone where it's like it's a droning sound well the distributor also took the movie out of federal and ray's hands and edited gore and monster shots throughout the picture when characters are just walking around so what you get is almost like an eraser head like what right. why why do you are you cutting to a man in a lion mask so it has this kind of idiot savant dreamy quality to it yep. this unintentional dreamy quality but uh i have to say i was pretty bored by it you know I think that Justin the Clue seven years ago when he saw Scalps for the first time would also say that. But now that you're at the Cosmic Brain stage. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Where I was just totally into it. And it probably comes from the fact that I've listened to a lot of Frettel and Ray commentary tracks at this point. And the one for Scalps is an all-timer. He talks about how he was trying to create a claustrophobic sense in the desert where, like, these characters are trapped in this large expanse. Does he succeed? No, not really. But I think that I can see that attempt there. And it's the rare Fred Olin Ray film that at the end pays off with something. In this case, <laughs> kids being killed. Like, we actually see some special effects, which would not be the case in most of his future pictures. All right, you're right. It's a masterpiece. Uh, <laughs> Three stars out of five. But it's not what I would think of in my limited experience with him as, like, a quintessential it's Fred Olin Ray movie. Absolutely. Uh, the style that I associate with Fred Olin Ray is uh, a lot of model types with big breasts in one location, some shitty house in the Hollywood Hills or something, and they're running around being chased by a ghoul. So we have to clarify right here that Fred Olin Ray, I said at the beginning, had no money when he started. He continued to have no money. He would shoot films for like $50,000 in four to five days. Mm -hmm. And because that's the way that he shot his movies, he would talk about that when he first made The Alien Dead, he had this crazy shot list. And he quickly realized that he was never going to be able to do it. So he ripped it up and threw it in the swamp. And ever since then, basically when he constructs a scene is, I've heard him actually say this, every scene 
needs only three shots, three <laughs> different angles. He used to do only two angles on the two people talking, but then he decided to throw in a third one to spice things up when things got boring. Okay. And you can tell. So we watched Beverly Hills Vamp. Oh my God. Starring Edward Deason. <laughs> and when we started the movie, we went, you know, Eddie Deason is probably a pretty big star at this point. No, I, I don't recall saying that. <laughs> this pro- was 10 years after Grease. He'll probably show up at the beginning. He won't interact with too many people. <laughs> And then he'll disappear from the film. Nope. <laughs> this is the Eddie Deason show. This like Eddie Deason is to Jerry Lewis as Ben Turpin is to Charlie Chaplin. He's rigorously one note. I would say after about 20 minutes, I pretty much saw everything in Eddie Deason's arsenal <laughs> and it just kept going. Well, it doesn't really ask much for Eddie Deason either, right? There's a part where the he says joke... everything in this tone of voice. <laughs> There's one joke where it's just he falls down some stairs <laughs> off screen. I think that was probably added in post because <laughs> Fred was like, we got to add some laughs to this. Uh, he's a very, he's a very unpleasant looking turtle like man. Eddie Deason. Yeah. Eddie Deason. Um, and I found his presence just utterly hateful. And doing some research on this film. Yeah. It was shot for like five days in the same house. And as I was watching it, I thought, man, when they shot these movies on film, it just legitimized them so much because at least this movie, can you imagine if they shot this movie on digital video, it would just look well, uh, there are well, many Fred yeah. and Ray films that you can check out. So Beverly Hills Vamp is about uh, three knuckleheads who move to Hollywood in hopes of making a movie, uh, the main one of whom is Eddie Deason. They don't have much luck selling their script, so they decide, uh, let's answer this ad for an escort agency and at least have a little sex out of the mm-hmm. deal. So they go- As to, one would when we go to Hollywood. Yeah, it's a Sodom and Gomorrah, basically. <laughs> Holly weird, I call it. So they uh, go to this, what they think is a broth, um, a bordello of blood, if you will. Yeah, because there are some vampire women there. Uh, the 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 coven is. Are you trying to figure out if it's coven? Yeah, or coven? I am. Because American classic American movie. American movie messed with my brain. Uh, <laughs> the coven, because yeah. it rhymes with oven. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the coven is run by uh, Britt Eklund. Yeah. Because Fred Olin Ray movies are where stars go to die. <laughs> I would say that Fred Olin Ray probably actually likes these stars and wants to give them a chance and work with them. Sure. You know, they also die. Uh, So most of the movie is Eddie Deason being uh, chased around the house by various ghouls, Abbott and Costello style. (laughs) But we have to understand that a Frelot and Ray film, while it is humorous and he is winking at the audience, it is also often bereft of jokes. Yes. Like, (laughs) unless you think Eddie Deason making a face over and over again is funny. He did not make enough faces. The highlight of the film. No, but he made three faces basically (laughs) over and over and over again. Was like the highlight of the film. For me and Will, was a cutaway to Eddie Deason driving a car, stone face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like Brissonian acting exactly. from Eddie Deason. So, Beverly Hill of Vamp, not so good. And also, I watched his signature film, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, uh, which is one joke movie where the joke isn't very good. It's all there in the title. Uh, There's a private detective, kind of a Sam Spade type, who's on the trail of this missing woman, and it leads him to uh, this cult that worships an Egyptian god, and uh, they do human sacrifices by chainsaw. And of course, all of them are uh, young lovelies with surgically enhanced busts. Uh, as I see a lot of them. Yeah, and as I was watching it, I was thinking about if I saw this movie when I was 11... It would be the greatest film of all I, time. I would, my mind would have been blown, because when you're 11, you're very fascinated by the idea of naked women, but 
you don't really want the reality of it. Like, yeah, you don't want yeah. people having sex. Like, when you're 11, you probably don't want to see pornography. Yeah, like, there there are, like, bodily fluids and mm-hmm. the way people smell. And, like, <laughs> like, sex is a much more complicated thing than just an airbrushed photo. Mm-hmm. But what Hollywood Chainsaw Hooker gives you is just the breasts in a more comedic scenario. And this is also why an 11-year-old would love it, because you get brass, and also you get this wacky plot with chainsaw hookers and gore. And this is... Uh, gore is strong. You mean blood being sprayed off screen. Yeah. That's pretty much it. And I think this is my problem with the Fred Olin Ray uh, oeuvre, is that I, I feel him, like, digging a bony elbow into my uh, side, saying, eh, eh, this is fun, isn't it? This is what you like. Boobs, blood... And it's just utterly hollow. Well, I see, I don't really have that much of a problem with, you know, the winking and the stuff like that. The problem I have is that it's just the bare minimum you can give. It's right. in focus. You yeah. can kind of follow the story, but it's but, shot in four days and you can feel those four but, days. Yeah, it's the bare minimum. Not much happens. And there, I also feel like there's a certain smugness to these movies. It's like, this is what you want, eh? We're giving you what you want. Well... There's a funny story behind Hollywood Chainsaw Hooker because it was actually shot because Fred Olin Ray did a favor for his friend, Gary Graver, who we've talked oh, about before on the podcast. Love him. We got to do a whole episode on Gary Graver at some point. So the deal was, Fred Olin Ray said, I'll rewrite your script, but you got to give me $5,000 and you got to let me use your cameras for a number of days. And they said, sure, yeah, whatever. So he went and shot Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers on these days that he could borrow the equipment. Wow. Like that's inspirational. It I is. Like that. And that's Fred and Ray's story is that it's, he's never not been like scrapping together a film. Mm-hmm. Like he's always been doing that. I've been rather impressed by Fred Olin Ray's filmography lately. And one reason why, you know, I've been negative about him, but one reason why I kind of like him and I kind of like Jim Wynorski is they're still out there to this day doing their thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've talked about Fred Olin Ray before on this podcast way back when we talked about Steven Seagal. Fred Olin Ray is a very prolific director for hire these days. He did one of the recent Steven Seagal films, Sniper Special Ops, which I saw. and which we is, both watched. Which is bad. Yes. Um... Also, uh, Fred Olin Ray, I I saw a trailer recently for this, like, Hallmark Channel Christmas movie he directed with Chevy Chase and looking very bloated. (laughs) Well, that's the thing, is that Fred Olin Ray is a guy that always wanted to make movies. I've heard him talk about that he wished he could be a studio director. And basically, when he started making movies, that didn't really exist anymore. Mm. And he never got the opportunity to make the kind of mid-budget horror pictures that he wanted to make. But the thing is, the the horror movies he made independently are bad. And when you look at the the great Roger Corman protégés, like when Jonathan Demme made Caged Heat or when Scorsese made Box Cover, they're good. Didn't even have the resources that they did, even though that he did work for Roger Corman making Attack of the 60 Foot Centerfold. Yeah, but okay. But I've seen some Jim Wynorski movies that are kind of good. Yes. Yeah. Jim Wynorski has made good movies. And I I mean, you've shown me quotes this week of Fred Olin Ray saying, oh yeah, these movies are terrible or yeah know. he goes like i would not watch a disaster movie 
movie that I made starring Treat Williams or like an erotic thriller. Those are not the films that I like watching. And frankly, it comes across, whereas there are certain Jim Wynorski movies where, uh, I mean, Jim Wynorski loves boobs. Oh, he loves boobs. He loves action. You know it from his interviews. And I think his movies uh, convey that love. So Jim Wynorski and Ferland Ray are connected at the hip because they work together at the same time, coming up in the industry at the same time. They actually co-directed two films together. One of them that's barely a film because they shot in a day. It's called Scream Queen Hot Tub Party. That's like when Chaplin and Keaton got together for Limelight. (laughs) And they also made a film called Dinosaur Island, which is not good. It has a lot of long softcore sex scenes. Okay. (laughs) But Jim Wynorski has a bit of a different career from Fred Olin Ray. Jim Wynorski actually went to film school. He got kicked out. And then uh, he tried to be an assistant. He got fired from being an assistant. So then he accidentally met someone that knew Roger Corman, and he started working for Roger Corman, specifically in the advertising department. He was in charge of the trailers. He was basically the Joe Dante, Alan Arkush after their period, when Roger Corman was more in the weeds in the 90s. This is one of the things that's like wonderful when you read about Roger Corman's studio, the fact that you could like get in on the ground floor doing trailers or like sweep in the office, and eventually, because you would work for cheap, you'd make you'd be able to direct a movie. Well, Well, Jim Wynorski, what ended up happening was the famous story goes, there was an Italian exploitation picture called Island of the Fishmen directed by Sergio Martino. And Jim Wynorski didn't know how he was going to sell this film. So what he ended up doing is he shot some extra footage to put in the trailer that included a busty uh, woman in a lab coat that was attacked by like a fleshy monster. And the poster and the trailer promised Screamers, you will see a man turned inside out. (laughs) And Island of the Fishmen never had any of that in it. When they actually uh, showed the movie in theaters, supposedly the audiences almost rioted. To the point that Roger Corman told Wynorski, you need to go and shoot footage to insert into the film because you're just lying to them. But that's kind of what Wynorski loved to do, right? Is to like sell, to sell all this stuff. Did you hear that story that Scorsese said where, where before he shot Boxcar Bertha, Corman said to him, now remember, you got to have a little bit of nudity every 15 minutes. <laughs> well, I mean, with Jim Wynorski, it's like every five minutes. Yeah. Because Jim Wynorski was given an opportunity and he got to make Chopping Mall. Which I think is quite good. It is. It's I was a pleasantly lot of surprised by it. It's 75 minutes long. Oh, which is perfect great. time. Yeah. Uh, not a wasted second. A lot of lot of fun action scenes. Some pretty good comedy. Um, a little bit of gore. A little bit of gore. A bunch of cameos. It has some, uh, I mean, I, I hesitate to call it uh, social satire, but it has some stuff in there that kind of anticipates RoboCop, I think. The plot is that a shopping mall has introduced a new security system, which are these two robots, which will... Um, kill uh, (laughs) I mean they're not supposed to but they install lasers and heads explode on them yeah Uh, and the first people who think there's something wrong are uh, cameo performers Paul Bartel and uh, Mary Mary, Warnock playing the characters from Eating Raul and also uh, Dick Miller is in there as Walter Paisley (laughs) that's right Mm -hmm. Uh, his character from A Bucket of Blood I I saw in the credits that Mel Wells from Little Shop of Horrors uh, I didn't spot him did you? no I didn't but he apparently played like the chef or something Um, yeah Oh, because at one point they're at a pizzeria. And what ends up happening in the film is that a bunch of teenagers get trapped after hours and then chased by robots. Mm. The thing that I noticed this time watching it is that Jim Wynorski actually tries to do some cool stuff at some point. 
uh, there's one scene where all the teens are having sex and the camera tracks across all of them in one long shot yeah, to yeah. introduce all of them. I, I, I couldn't tell if he was like doing something oblique where it's like these are different rooms of the house, but no, actually it's... Well, on it's the commentary story. he says he only did that because he ran out of time and had to do the coverage <laughs> very fast. Well, necessity is the mother of invention. It's like when he, uh, Orson Welles was making uh, Othello and he had to turn one scene into a bathhouse scene because they had no costumes. Well, and the thing about Jim Wynorski that separates him from Fred and Ray is that Wynorski films move. Like, they often move very yeah. quickly. Fred and Ray films kind of just sit there. I also watched uh, Return of Swamp Thing, which uh, is probably his biggest budget movie, right? Uh, yeah. It was a franchise movie. And uh, so Louis Jordan is back. Uh, <laughs> this is about Swamp Thing... Honestly, it doesn't really even have a plot. It's like Louis no, Jordan Swamp fights the monsters. L- Louis Jordan is back and he's got this this Dr. Moreau-like lab and Heather Locklear, a young Heather Locklear is in there as Swamp Thing's love interest. And uh, one thing I liked about it was that uh, basically Swamp Thing carries himself like he's Roger Moore in this movie. <laughs> like the Swamp Thing in the original film is more of a monster yeah. and played for horrific effect. In this one, he's like, Oh, how's it going, everyone? So that was kind of fun. I didn't like how much time the movie wasted on two comical kids. Yeah. And just in general, I don't know. It's okay. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, But like the best Jim Wynorski films, Chopping Mall, Death Stalker 2, are movies that move very quickly and kind of reflect their inspirations. Like Death Stalker 2 was a sequel to that Conan ripoff, Death Stalker. But its real inspiration are like the kind of swashbuckling Errol Flynn pictures or serials mm-hmm. where like you could split the movie in 10 minute chunks and it would still make sense because it's episodic like that. Now, one movie that I revisited this week that I really like is called Papatopoulos. Mm-hmm. That's that's Papatopoulos. It's uh, a documentary about Jim Wynorski as he's making The Witches of Brestwick. <sighs> and he, and the, the big the big challenge of the movie is he has to shoot this movie in three days. Yes. Uh, so the movie follows him as he's making it. And it's just a wonderful, like, candid look at the making of a low-budget exploitation film. A film that you would just kind of like, toss off the shelf and go, well, this is bad. And it is. It is bad. Yeah. But the complexities that go into making it and the emotional exercises that he has to play with, with his actors who are like, this is terrible. Or there's this one scene where... They're trying to do a line of dialogue, and Jim Wynorski keeps interrupting uh, one of the actresses because she keeps getting one word wrong. And it just goes over and over and over and over again. It's an interesting movie because it captures the exploitation film industry at a crossroads because the internet has just come in, digital filmmaking is on the upswing the market for direct-to-video exploitation movies is bottoming out Mm -hmm. and so you need to make more and more movies for less and less money and there's this general sense like one of the actresses is julie smith i think her name Mm -hmm. is who's was in a lot of wynorski films and she talks about how it's just not fun anymore there's no time to do any acting three days is insane to shoot a film with in the film even climaxes with jim wynorski going i was gonna shoot this in two yeah um (laughs) so the movie on the one hand it's kind of fun and exciting because you get to see jim wynorski in the act of creation and he is a director who is very uh high stress he screams a lot yeah frillin ray said that when they were shooting dinosaur island he's a guy who keeps his cool all the time Mm -hmm. like he doesn't really jump off the handle because it's just a job but jim wynorski is a guy that's like ah like he's screaming like what the fuck is going on why isn't this working but you get a sense of jim wynorski as a guy who loves making movies And, and you know roger corman is interviewed in the film and he says that he always thought Wynorski could have moved up to bigger and better movies, but uh, but for some reason he didn't. And I think somebody else says that um, 
uh, it's because he likes he likes to make the movie quickly. He doesn't want to live in a movie for a year. He wants to have the quick satisfaction of one movie and then another movie and then another movie. And so there's the bittersweet quality is that his career has peaked. Once you've made Return to Swamp Thing, which is your most luxurious film, and then you're reduced to making Witches of Brestwick in three days, like it's not going back up. Yeah. I, like that, there's a melancholy quality to that. He's never going to have the glory days that they had in the 90s, which I'm sure at the time they were going, we're just going to fight through this. These are like the trenches and then yeah. we're going to move up to the big time. And then we find out at the end of the movie that Julie Smith like retired the next week because it was just too depressing. <laughs> but Jim Wyronorski and Fred and Ray just kept on trucking. I mean... And that's great. I'm glad they're out there. I'm glad they're doing their thing. The reason that I like that they're doing their thing and we've kind of alluded to this is that they are big movie fans. Mm-hmm. Like Jim Wyronorski films, especially the early ones are littered with references. Jim Wynorski's first film was a picture called The Lost Empire, which he made completely independently. And he, when he talks about the film, he talks about it in such reverent tones because he put his everything in it. There's ninjas, a lot of women with large breasts. It's a plot of Enter the Dragon, where it's like a fighting tournament on an island. There's a guy in a gorilla suit. And you just hear him talk about this movie, which he was obviously very passionate about. And you can see like, that love is something that I'm just yeah. attracted to. At one point in the commentary track, he talks about how he got an old Lassie actor in the film. Mm-hmm. And when that actor appears on screen, you can hear the sound from the original Lassie TV show, the dog barking in the background, just as a wink and a nudge to fans that they will never get. Because yeah. come on. I think both directors have cast Dick Miller as Walter Paisley. That's in their right. Films. Uh, you know, Wynorski made a remake of Roger Corman's Not of This Earth with Tracy Lords, which is a terrible film. And, uh, and Wynorski, he started a bunch of his films with uh, Miracle Pictures, which is a joke from the Joe Dante Allen Arkush film Hollywood Boulevard, where the company in that film is called Miracle Pictures, and their tagline is, if it's good, it's a miracle. Yeah. And I mean, Fred and Ray called his company American Independent Pictures. Because the, the other company was American International, the one that Corman worked for. And like, if you just need to look at like where their fandom comes from, Ferlin Ray wrote a book on independent filmmakers called The New Poverty Row, where he goes company by company and breaks down the exact money they spent on the movie, days, advertising, all that stuff, including his own work. All right, I have a question for you. Does your increased uh, appreciation for them come from the fact that you're now finishing your second film? No, well, like, I don't think so. Really, you don't see any kinship with them as like these independent directors, you know? putting together exploitation movies on the fly. Uh, I wish I could be more like them in that sense, but I've never been in their world, right? Where mm. it's like a for money world. Mm. Like I, like this movie that I'm working on has taken me like a year and a half to finish. That would be unfathomable <laughs> for Fred Olin Ray and Jim Wire Norris. You're more of an Orson Welles. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, Fred Olin Ray in like right at the beginning of his career, he ended up with his son that he had to take care of while he was making movies. So the monster in the film Biohazard is played by his actual son, Christopher Ray, which is insane. <laughs> and Christopher Ray actually went on to be a director himself, making such magnum opuses as Two-Headed Shark Attack. Okay. Yeah. Uh, before we uh, wrap this up, I'm reminded of you and I, a long time ago, listened to this great commentary track on a movie that Fred Olin Ray produced produced called jacko the most famous commentary track of all time i it's probably not true but uh it, it's infamous yeah because basically the guy who directed jacko which Steve Latcha. Is, which is kind of like a a serial it's like a halloween ripoff where the the villain has like a pumpkin for a head and it has some 
some stock footage of John Carradine thrown in, kind of like Bella Lugosi in Plan 9. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Steve, what's his name, takes this movie so seriously. And at every stage, he's talking about all the serious decisions he made. And basically, Fred Olin Ray is doing kind of a mystery science theater on it. And Steve Latchaw is having none of it. And, it. and it's boiling. And it's like one dig here, one dig there. And then eventually, Steve like walks out of the commentary. Yeah, because Fred Olin Ray makes a dig about Steve Latchaw's son. Yeah. <laughs> about the fact that he has a prison record you don't go after someone's family (laughs) and he's like fuck you and And then then, then he comes back he says i'm not gonna let you ruin my commentary (laughs) hey i thought we were friends i don't think i'd ever consider us friends more like acquaintances and then it ends with him saying fuck you fred (laughs) yeah that's right but the weird thing about that is that fred and ray and c latchaw have done like multiple commentaries after that it's a klaus kinski Werner herzog type relationship (laughs) but i should let people go not thinking that oh man these guys sound terrible but like actually point them in directions uh that these artists have done stuff that I like. Ferlin Ray in the book New Poverty Row talks about one film that he actually enjoyed making and that he was proud of. Most of the other films, he's like, ugh, they're terrible. I had so many restrictions. And that film is called Haunting Fear. It's a adaptation of The Premature Burial by Edgar Allan Poe. But it's basically Federal and Ray's uh, Repulsion, where it's like <laughs> one girl going crazy for 90 minutes. Mm. And that's something we didn't point out either, is that a lot of the reasons that Federal and Ray's film feel airless is that they need to be 84 minutes. Mm-hmm. And that when you shoot things for four days, they usually end up 60 minutes and you got to pad it out. Yeah. And you feel that padding. Well, at least one of the movies we saw, maybe two of them start with like some intro of like an old guy sitting in a chair explaining the story we're going to see. And it's like such transparent padding. <laughs> yeah, it is. And Frodo and Ray has his own DVD releasing company called Retromedia, mm. where he releases classic exploitation films and he does new scans of them, does commentary, special features. Like he genuinely cares about these films. And that's great. I love that. And you know, you, you were mentioning that Jim Wynorski's kind of given up on the dream, like he's never going to be what he used to be. But he did get a ch- chance to make a remake of, is it Gila? No, Gila? I can never the, say The it. giant Gila monster? Yeah, he remade the giant Gila monster in 2012, and he actually had um, the... <laughs> star of the original 60s picture in his movie oh wow i gotta check that out okay and it even has like the same theremin score as the original film oh nice so you you know it's that love is still there it just has difficulty expressing itself in the kind of economic situations that they find themselves in but i mean you know one of the one of the things about papatopoulos is they they kind of try to inspire the audience to feel sad that this era of like kind of low but still respectably budgeted exploitation movies, respectably budgeted. Like, like, like direct-to-video exploitation movies of the 80s is vanishing. And part of me watches that and thinks, okay, so we don't get movies like Beverly Hills Vamp anymore. Like, big big deal. Who cares? <laughs> oh, wow. You're going to end it with a swipe like that at the end instead of a... Yeah, I am. <laughs> okay. But they seem like nice guys. Fred and Ray, Jim Wynorski, you have a place in my heart. All right. So we do have one letter this week, and it's from Ray Hammonds. And he goes, hey, guys, just wanted to say I'm a fairly recently discoverer of the podcast, but really dig it. I'm a tireless cinephile routinely logging 500 to 700 films a year. Whoa, man. And really enjoying listening to film-related podcasts while commuting, doing household chores, etc. The majority of podcasts have a kind of focus on that week's biggest general release with some occasional deep dives. But what I really enjoy about your show is an enthusiasm and commitment to exploring a wide range of cinema from different eras, countries of origin, etc. It's refreshing and inspiring and it hits me right in my cinephile sweet spot. I'm sorry I'm reading this so fast, but it's a long letter. We like to hit you right in the sweet spot, (laughs) you know? 
I'll toss out some ideas for potential episodes. My favorite filmmakers are very diverse and generate strong opinions, so I'm a bit nervous nominating them. I'm referring to Terrence Malick and Spike Lee. There's definitely plenty to discuss there, but for now, let me suggest something more off the beaten path. An episode on slow cinema, or contemporary contemplative cinema. I've provided some helpful links below. Oh, thank you. Filmmakers like Bellatar, Lissandro Alonso, Carl Dreyer, James Benning, Pedro Costa, and then he names a whole bunch more. And my second suggestion, an episode on movie lists. Their pros and cons with central focus on the website They Shoot Pictures, Don't They? And the two annually updated super lists. The greatest thousand films and 21st century's most acclaimed films list. P.S. Thanks for doing episodes on Kelly Reichardt and Charles Burnett. Uh, well, I, I'm sure we'll do Terrence Malick and Spike Lee at some point. Uh, the reason we haven't done Spike Lee is like, we have to do an African-American director. <laughs> He's the first one that everybody goes yeah, to. Yeah. So we want to kind of do more off the beaten path. Yeah, but we'll get to him. Um, yeah, and as far as slow cinema, that has been requested before. Uh, should we? Like, I would actually be kind of more interested in doing some of those filmmakers. Yes, yeah, in- individually. Individually, but I mean, it, it's an interesting trend. In fact, we might get to one next week. Oh, uh, we may. Uh, uh, anyway, thanks but, for but, your but, letter. But, but let's talk about film lists. What do you think of film lists? I don't like ranking lists. I like the idea of film lists, but at the same time, I will look at lists to get inspiration from what movies I should yeah. watch. Sometimes I look at people, they'll rank their lists of, here are my 100 favorite movies in order, and it's like, how 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 do you determine the difference between 56 and 57? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But that's what people love. Like, you've written for websites. It's all about lists. It's the I idea guess. that you're getting that information in a concise fashion that can be absorbed. A top 10 list I get. Yes. Um, you know, and top 10 lists are fun. You know, I, on my Twitter this week, a lot of people were uh, posting their, like, top 10 comedies of all time because I guess the BBC was doing a poll and I was, like, trying to think of what mine would be. And the problem is I actually think it's harder to do a list of the best comedies than it is the best movies of all time because best movies of all time, that's, like, super exclusive. It's just a given that most things are left off. But with a, with the comedy list, I found myself thinking, like, oh, well, I got to have... I gotta have a Keaton on. I gotta have a. I gotta have a three Stooges. Do you remember on. when the AFI did that big special about the top hundred comedies of all time? I watched it with great interest. As <laughs> and an number one was Some Like It Hot. I remember th- thinking. I mean, it's a. It's an all right movie. I'm not a fan. Well, number two is Tootsie, which is <laughs> like totally ridiculous. I remember being. Uh, well, I, I mean, I know the, that list, if you look at it now, is pretty bad because there were a lot of movies that were sort of like in memory at the time, like City Slickers is on that list. Has anybody watched that since? No, I'm a bigger fan of City Slickers too. The Search for Curly's <laughs> old. Uh, but I mean, a comedy list, I think, would attract a lot more movies that like were made in the last 10 years just because people remember laughing so hard at them. Yeah, well, know. lists are weird, right? They mostly exist to make people angry. <laughs> well, and also just as like, performative to yeah. show look at what my taste is exactly like i want to validate myself with my taste but i mean i don't think that's so bad i think i think it's kind of fun to look at people's top 10 lists i remember when the sight and sound list came out last time it was i enjoyed looking at everybody's yeah know. that's fun because i usually look at filmmakers that i like like what are their favorite films and that's interesting because you want to see what inspired them right yeah. it was weird that michael mann put avatar on his list <laughs> michael mann doesn't get a chance to go out to the movies very often yeah and, you know, he is in love with technology and stuff like that. Yeah. At the same time, me and Will have actually uh, messaged each other being going, we did 
episodes that have the best of such and such in the title. And that's the one that gets the most clicks. It's true. We've actually been thinking about doing like a top 10 movies of all time episode. Do you think that would like, there's nowhere to go from there after you've given those top 10 movies of all time? No, I don't think that. I think that. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, it's like. I, I'm not going to shock anybody with my top 10 movies of all time. Like, you're not going to shock anybody either. No. Yeah. Unless we make a contrarian Is that what list. it should be about? Shocking people? I think that's what people want from lists. I think they want to be surprised and they want to see things that they haven't heard of. Okay, but I think but I think a list, more than anything, it's it, it's just to see what a person's taste is. Yeah. And that's what our lists would communicate, mm-hmm. what our tastes are. Yeah, exactly. Our list wouldn't... It, I mean, I can't put all of Bellatar's film on my top 10 list, yeah. so I'll have to shave it down. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, when I go on Letterboxd and I see that somebody <laughs> has like, you know, Fight Club, Pulp Fiction, American Beauty... And they just the followed you? As the favorite... <laughs> Oh, no, no, no. I love my fans. (laughs) All right. So next week, we're going to be talking about Chantal Ackerman. And I got to tell you, it's going to be a real breath of fresh air after this week. (laughs) Really? Because I was like, after I watched all these movies, I was like, can I do something easy this time? We we could just change it. (laughs) No, Chantal Ackerman, that's what we said. She's been on the periphery for, it feels like a year now, where we're like, we should do Chantal Ackerman. But it's finally time. I've never seen one of her films. Not even Jean Dielman. Uh, nope. Okay. I don't know if you're going to like it. <laughs> I know what Jean Dielman is. I, th- I think it's a great film. I think it's one of the best movies ever made. It's also, that and No Home Movie are the only two of her films I've seen. So, am I going to, I know what Jean Dielman is. It's about three and a half hours of a woman going through her daily uh, chores from a locked okay, camera but, position. But if you're going to watch I it. I need to watch it. Like, yeah, I need to like, sit down. trap yourself in the room because yep. it has an uh, accumulative power. Exactly. I can't uh, be checking my phone, looking up to see And like, different. you have to embrace the boredom. The boredom is part of it. Did you watch the movie in the theater? I did. Okay. And it was one of the best movie experiences I've ever had. But we'll talk more about that next week. Yeah. I think I'll also take a look at uh, News from Home and uh, Je Tu Willel. You know what? I lied. I have seen a Chantal Ackerman movie. You've seen? I've seen Golden 80s. Okay. The musical she did that takes place in a shopping mall. Have you seen A Couch in New York? No, I have not. (laughs) So that's what we're going to be doing next week. If you're fans of this podcast, you need to get the Patreon Uh, subscription. We've got a doozy for you this week. So we recorded... The Chantal Ackerman of New Jersey. (laughs) Kevin Smith. (laughs) Yeah. We did an episode where we watched Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. But me and Will knew better that we were just going to talk for 30 minutes. You get a whole new episode this week for $5. You can listen to it and all the episodes we've previously done and get all the future ones as well that come up. One every week exclusive to Patreon. And we've had some letters asking, you know, for Kevin Smith. So here's your Kevin Smith. (laughs) You just have to pay for it. Yeah. If you really love us, you'll pay for it. And you can send us letters at Loose Cannons Podcast. No, not Loose Cannons Podcast, you you bastard, you two timing. <laughs> you can send And now letter. you're gonna yell somebody else's name during sex later. <laughs> As opposed to Will Slow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's the kind of gay panic jokes that we heard a lot of in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. This yeah, week. that's right. That was a little taste. Yeah. So you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Rate and review us on iTunes. I begged you guys to do it last weekend. Nobody did. Yeah, what the hell? We want to get in new and notable next to Tiff Long Take or wherever the other ones are. All right. Until then, my name is Justin Nicklin. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So one director that we didn't talk about this week that's very much uh, in the same class, the same generation, the same milieu of Jim Wynorski and Fred Olin Ray is David Dakota. Mm-hmm. 
I believe we've talked about him previously in the podcast, right? Because we had a face-to-face interaction with him at a convention. We met him at the, uh, God, what the hell was it Horrorama. That's that's right. And also, I uh, wrote a profile of of Mr. Dakota. Because if you don't know, he directed a cult classic film, which is... A Talking Cat? <laughs> uh, Starring Eric Roberts' voice from a bathroom. Uh, so that article that I wrote is uh, was for Flavor Wire about two or three years Did ago. Did it go viral? I don't know if it went viral, but, but it's David like, Dakota well, knew about well, it. Well, when we met Dakota, uh, I was just going to get my Talking Cat DVD autographed, and you and you said, "Wait, didn't you talk to Dakota?" And I said, "Oh yeah, I did that Fla- Flavor Wire article." And Dakota gave me this look that was like, "Oh man, everyone's read that article," which I didn't know if he was happy about that. He or was. Not. He, he was? said, "Yeah." He said it got so much traction on the movie. I really appreciated. Oh, that. I don't remember that. I remember just being like shocked and scared and worried he wouldn't like me. And we talked with Dakota for like 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I really I really like him as, yeah. as, as a guy, yeah. But he is also a filmmaker and other than A Talking Cat, which is his later picture, like Fairlow and Rain, Jim Wynorski, he started like kind of at the bottom of the barrel. He actually started working on films like Escape from New York. He was the craft service person on that movie. And his earlier directorial efforts were porn. Yes, yeah, they were. Which is uh, interesting because he is a gay man mm-hmm. and he was making straight porn. Mm-hmm. And when he would later go on in his early career making films like Dreamy, Dreamniac, Dream Maniac, uh, Sorority Babes at the Slime Ball Bolorama, Creepazoids, uh, Beach Babes from Beyond. What a cast that movie has. It has Don Swayze, <laughs> Frank Stallone, and several other celebrities. Yeah, just like a million celebrity And, and also Burt Ward. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> and we talked about Ferlo and Ray and Jim Wynorski as kind of bottom of the barrel. David Dakota, even in his early career, was like, let's do the like basic thing to get a movie. Yeah. So David Dakota did make a movie. So he did a lot of movies with Charles Band, Full Moon Productions. His best film is Puppet Master 3, The Revenge of Toulon. It's very, very good. Uh, it was written by a guy named C. Courtney Joyner, who's a big movie fan like him, so it has that feel. I also know that Retro Puppet Master is an early starring role for Greg Sestero from The Room. And in fact, I believe David is even in The Disaster Artist. <laughs> That's himself. right. Yeah. But he did make a movie in the mid-90s called Leather Jacket Love Story, which is kind of his attempt to enter the kind of new queer cinema that was happening at the time. Kind of a Bruce LaBruce style movie. I've never seen it. Uh, well, it it was it's interesting because I think it's his only movie to lose money. So huh. it's kind of like what The Intruder was for Roger Corman. Yeah, and while Fred and Jim went on to make like Hallmark movies and other stuff like that, David just kind of threw that away and he started his own company, Rapid Heart Pictures, and he just makes his own movies. But what's interesting is Roger Corman has talked about how, uh, so after after I made this artistic film, The Intruder, I realized I had to smuggle my political commentary into exploitation films. Uh, sometime around the turn of the millennium, David Dakota's movies got a lot queerer. Yes. Um, and in his interview with me, I thought it was kind of interesting. He said that uh, he positioned these movies as being for women Mm. uh, because the the way they sort of objectified the male body. But I'm sorry, if you watch any of them, they are for gay men. I mean, they go through the sub-sub genre of tidy-whitey films. Yes. Because they're famous for very cut young men wearing nothing but underwear. There are a lot of cut young men. And also, uh, even a movie like A Talking Cat has this young kid who's kind of a twink. Mm -hmm. and, And anybody who would watch the movie would recognize, oh, this is a twink. 
what I find fascinating about David Dakota is that his films are like as low budget as you can get, shot in two days in some dude's mansion in LA, mm-hmm. with sometimes barely competent filmmaking around them. Like David Dakota is I've described him as a kind of Jess Franco like figure mm-hmm. right now, in the fact that by the time the film is done, he's it feels like he's pretty much done with it. And it's about shooting the next one. That's what he's passionate about, is the filmmaking process. And also, like Jess Franco, his movies are like free associative filmmaking. So a lot of his own preoccupations and fetishes make their way into the movie just because it's coming right out of him at that moment. He had this whole series of movies that were on Netflix for a long time called 1313. They had that, that title because numerical titles showed up first in VOD <laughs> That's listings. Right. Uh, and the 1313 movies were basically about hot dudes in tidy whities in a mansion, but a lot of them would also feature old faded screen queens. He loves his cinema history. Just yeah. like Pearl and Ray and Jim, like David Dakota loves bringing these like washed up actors and just giving them a chance to appear on camera well, again. As, as he told me, I asked about Christine DeBell, who's in A Talking Cat and probably half dozen other of his films. Christine DeBell was in Meatballs, The Big Brawl with Jackie Chan, uh, the adult version of Alice in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. Um, and she then uh, retired for about 20 years to raise her kids. And she sent him a resume because she was thinking, oh, maybe I'll get back into acting. And he called her up and was like, wait, are you Christine DeBell? I, you, you're you're amazing. You're a star. And she was like, you know who I am? <laughs> yeah. And now she's in a half dozen of his movies. Because it's almost no commitment. You show up for one yeah. day and shoot in like a house with almost no lights and you just kind of goof off. And, you know, you hear him talk about some of these people like he's worked with Tom Berenger or the guy in A Talking Cat was this child star from from the 60s who I, I can't even remember his name but you know just some somebody that david dakota grew up loving it's kind of like how bella lugosi and ed wood like ed wood idolized exactly bella yeah and like david dakota made a movie i don't remember the exact title it's called like santa's summer house i think that he cast all of these action stars from the 90s like cynthia rothrock gary daniels all these action stars to do no action and just do comedy. Okay, that's what's weird about his movies. His movies are constantly confounding your expectations because he'll make these movies that have a bunch of hot dudes in tidy whities but they'll also have these faded scream queens who like aren't in their underwear, but when you see the DVD box, it's like they're, they're all posing really seductively. Yep, that's right. And it's like, wait, is the which audience is this for? <laughs> I don't think David Dakota thinks of that. I think that... He's said that he just loves waking up in the morning and going, I want to make a movie. I can start shooting this afternoon. Yeah. Like money changes hands directly from his to the actors. Well, you've heard the story about him getting Eric Roberts to be the voice of the talking cat. He, he, he called up the Roberts household and was like, hey, want to be the voice of a cat in my cat movie? So sure, and come y- on over. It wasn't Roberts that said that. It was his wife right. who went, yep. Come on over because Eric Roberts does not know who David Dakota is. Well, because Eric Roberts has been in... 10 of his movies yep. at least and and as he told us when we met him he was like yeah last time i saw him he he recognized me yeah but he didn't know my name and he still calls me chief yeah <laughs> he's so, like hey chief where do you need me so he went over and uh, dakota had forgot like his proper recording equipment so he basically just had like the camera rec- 
like the built-in audio on his camera. And he held it up to Eric Roberts' mouth, which is why the talking cat sounds like he's coming from a bathroom. Yeah. It's like echoey, sad reading. Yeah. And I think there's something kind of great about that, that Dakota could just go out and make those movies. Like, we're not forced to watch yeah. them, right? Yeah. And at the same time, Dakota can do these million commentary tracks on, like, classic exploitation films, oh, yeah. which are amazing. Yeah. Like, he does some with, uh, is it David? Uh, uh, Ted, Ted Newsome. Yeah. Uh, on some of the Ed Wood movies. And, and they're great because he knows his stuff. He's a great talker. And, you know, I've heard him talk about, like, on a commentary he does with Charles Band on Charles Band's first movie, Crash. And he's like, I love this movie. I loved it so much mm. that I remade it in the early <laughs> 2000s. But for me, Dakota only becomes a really interesting filmmaker, like, in the last five years, mm. frankly. Like, Beach Babes from Beyond, Sorority Babes at the Slimeball Bolorama. Yeah, it's like low-tier kind of Empire Full Moon pictures. Yeah, but it's in the last five Wizard or six video. years that uh, he has developed a style that is entirely his own. And it's like, so- somewhere in that uh, kind of affectless digital sheen uh is is something that's intoxicating to me. It'll be interesting to see his films be kind of picked up later on once they've, you know, he either retires or he slows down a little bit yeah. and those gems are picked out in the same way that like people obsess over Jess Franco. Yeah, like Jess Franco has like one in every 10 movies is amazing. Yeah, and I, you know what? I bet that David Dakota stuff happens as well, but there's no way to know unless we watch them all now. And I'm, I don't think I can do that. <laughs>